talk about that because he is saying won't go to heaven. But then what does it mean that those who live that way? And that's the key to that. That's the key to that, yeah. Okay, any, yes, Liz. You know, I'm really going to skip over that, and I think maybe I'll just answer it now. Uh, I'm not going to skip over it, but I, that was part of what I cut. Um, and what was the criticism? He was saying, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why am I still being opposed? There was a criticism that, hey, this is what Paul teaches. I mean, he had Timothy circumcised, didn't he? And he said that when I'm with a Jew, I live like a Jew, and when I'm with a Gentile, so, so isn't that preaching circumcision? And the, sh the short answer to that is, no, there were good reasons why Paul said what he said in Romans and why he had Timothy circumcised. I don't have the time to go into that now. Just know that that was a, 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 a false accusation that was leveled against Paul. If that really trips your trigger and you want to know why he had Timothy circumcised and why he wrote what he did in Romans, then come see me and I'll be happy to, to tell you that one. Any other questions? Yes, Susan. Yeah, yeah, I've had that question before. And um, they were mostly only concerned about the men, um, and women were part uh, of the men, essentially not much more than property. So um, you better hope your father or your, your uh, husband was circumcised, I think would be the answer to that. Uh, and then also the women did keep what ceremonial law they could. But yeah, there's... Uh, there's that whole thing with circumcision, there's only one kind of person that can have that happen. Okay. <clears throat> Any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have in your word. Father, um, may it be profitable, but even more, Father, may it just pierce our hearts and our lives with your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to give you a, a very brief review of where Paul's argument, his theological argument has come, because basically in chapter 2, uh, and certainly by chapter 3, he was full-blown in sort of theological uh, mode, and, and, and he has been making this point ever since, and he's going to keep making it until, uh, until Galatians 5.12. So, uh, and, and that theological argument is that justification, or becoming right with God, being made right with God, comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he has been hammering that argument home, that justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is nothing we need to do, indeed there is nothing we can do, to make ourselves right with God, to earn his favor. Now, because of what the Judaizers were teaching, and, and they were teaching that it is through the ceremonial law and, and specifically circumcision that we are made right with God. Because of that teaching, Paul has been focusing on the works of the law. He's been focusing on Jewish law as a, means of, of, as a false means of justification. But the truth is that we can't be saved by keeping any law. It doesn't matter what the do's or don'ts are, they don't save. They can't save. No matter what standard we try to put out there, we can't reach it. So it's not a, a, a valid form of justification. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with the law. 
especially the moral law. We, we can't even be saved by keeping the moral law. And not because there's anything wrong with the law. In fact, Paul says if there was a law that we could keep, we could be saved by it. The problem is with us, that we can't keep that moral law. The moral law is God's holy standard. And as we'll see, he says, live by the Spirit so that you can keep the moral law. And so Paul is going to discuss that uh, in, in Galatians 5. The problem isn't with the law, it's with us. We can't be saved by the moral law because we can't keep the moral law in order to be saved by it. We are sinful. He's also said that we were formerly slaves before Christ came and before we knew Christ, we were slaves. The Jews were slaves to the law. The Gentiles were slaves to paganism. But the fact remains that they were all slaves. And then he says, but now because of Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. And then he says, but if you insist on going back, if you insist on going back to the law, then you will be enslaved all over again. You'll just sell yourself back into slavery. All of which brings Paul to this analogy at the end of chapter 4, and he, as, he's, as he's starting to close his theological ar ar um, argument, not an analogy, excuse me, an allegory concerning those who are slaves and those who are free. And I want to tell you before we read this passage that Galatians 4, 21 through 31 Every theologian I read called it one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. So for an, I, I don't have any sort of advanced degree in theology. We're out of luck. My brother-in-law, who's a PhD in, in uh, systematic theology, is not with us. So unless one of y'all has one of those, um, our purpose here is not to just get really down into the nitty-gritty of these verses, but to, uh, to understand the flow of Paul's argument through this passage, and then to understand his main point in this passage, or his main points with the allegory. Now, allegorical teaching, teaching by way of allegory, is not something we hear a lot of now, um, but it was very, very common in, in ancient Judaism and in ancient philosophical teaching. So, in fact, this story of Hagar and Sarah that is being taught here would likely have been allegorized by the Judaizers themselves to mean something very different. But they probably had a teaching, uh, an allegorical teaching about it as well. So Paul was in a sense here beating the Judaizers at their own game. He was saying, hey, maybe you're not looking at it just right. So, so here's what the Judaizers were saying. Here's their logic, and this is what Paul is refuting. He, the Judaizers were saying to the, the Galatians, God's promises were only to Abraham and his descendants. We, as Jews, are those descendants. So the promises are for us. Sadly, you Gentiles are not his descendants, and therefore, they're not for you. However, you can become Abraham's descendants with a little snip snip. All you need to do is become circumcised and keep the ceremonial law. And Paul answers that, and I love the way he begins here. He answers that with a little uh, sarcastic theological trash talking. Basically what he's saying in these opening verses is, you can't handle the law, which I, I'm horrible at Jack Nicholson, but that's essentially what he's saying. Here's uh, Galatians 21 through 23. The, 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 this is separated into um, sort of three uh, parts, and, and so the first part is the historical situation. So in verses 21 to 23, Paul writes this. 
Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Now, he's talking about a story in Genesis, and I had you read that this week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But God promised Abraham a son, and he got older, Abraham did, and Sarah got older, and no son was coming, and she wasn't getting pregnant. And so pretty soon, Sarah came up with a great idea. Why don't you go sleep with my slave woman, Hagar, and then have a baby, and that will fulfill God's promise. They wanted, he wanted, this was by the whole God helps those who help themselves plan. I told somebody recently that that was not in the Bible, and she did not believe me. It is not in the Bible. God, it is nowhere does it say God helps those who help themselves. And, and so they were trying to help God along with the promise. Ever done that? Yeah, I have too. And, uh, and have the baby this way. And obviously, any woman would go, Sarah, bad idea. Really, not a good idea. And it wasn't a good idea at all. Hagar did have a baby that was Ishmael. And God was like, that was not what I promised you. I told you I'd give you a son. And so then Sarah becomes pregnant at 90, and they have Isaac. So Abraham and Sarah were trying to take the blessing of God rather than waiting for it. Ever done that? Me too. Um, this is what one theologian said. I love this. Whereas Isaac was a gift, Ishmael is what Abe got, Abraham got for trying to do things his way instead of God's way. Uh, so here we have, uh, this, is, this is what we have here. We have Hagar, the slave woman, who gives birth to Ishmael. We have Sarah, the free woman, who gives birth to Isaac. So there are two sons, two births, two methods, there are even two mothers, but there's one dad, Abraham. So the two, um, the Ishmael was born in the ordinary way, it tells us, the way most people are born. Hey, baby. <laughs> uh, by human desire, by human decision, and by contriving, in this case, human contriving. Isaac was born according to the promise of God. Isaac was born because God stepped in and supernaturally caused it to happen. He said it would happen, and then he made it happen. So Isaac was born according to the promise. He was the result of God's supernatural invention. And then that leads to then two very uh, different approaches to religion or even approaches to God. Because you see, from Ishmael we get the law. We get human contriving. We get human... Um, uh, motive and, and human ways of trying to reach God. We get the law. From Isaac, we get grace. It is all of God and all of his grace that we are made right with him. From Ishmael, we get flesh uh, and, and human flesh and, and human contriving. From Isaac, we get the spirit. So flesh against spirit. From Ishmael, we get self-reliance. And from Isaac, we get dependence on God. Not dependence on ourself, but dependence on God. So that's the historical situation. Here's the allegorical interpretation. These two things may be taken figuratively, for the woman represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But, Jeru but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren 
woman who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So um, this, is, this is talking about not who's your daddy. The question isn't who's your daddy. The question is who's your mama? That's what makes the difference. Is your mama Hagar, who corresponds to Mount Sinai? Why Mount Sinai? Well, for two reasons. First of all, where did the law come from? God gave them the law on Mount Sinai, and Ishmael uh, refers to the law. Secondly, the Ishmaelites, the people that went on um, to, to be the descendants of Ishmael, lived in the area of Mount Sinai. So uh, literally, Hagar's descendants were from Mount Sinai. So Hagar was a slave, and she bears children who are slaves. And then it says that she corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, he means literally the Jerusalem of Paul's day, which, by the way, was under Roman rule, and so therefore they were slaves, in a sense, to Roman rule. But it also, uh, Jerusalem was also the center of Jewish law. It was the center of Jewish legalism, again, representing the law, which comes uh, from from Ishmael and, and following the law. And it was also the home of the Judaizers. This would have shocked the Judaizers to no end that he was comparing Ishmael to the Jerusalem, uh, the actual physical Jerusalem in Palestine. So this covenant, this covenant that comes from Abraham to Hagar to Ishmael, this covenant of law is, is any sort of works-based righteousness. It is a, a, a justification by the law. It is a justification by works. Then he talks about Sarah, whose children are free. Sarah is a free woman, and therefore the children she bears are free. And she is corresponding with the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem of heaven, or what will be the new Jerusalem on earth. Notice, by the way, that this is in the present tense. It doesn't say the Jerusalem that will be. The Jerusalem that is above. It is already and waiting for us. And then he goes into this, uh, quoting Isaiah 54, 1, be glad, O barren woman. Originally, when Isaiah prophesied that, he was talking about Jerusalem during the time of the exile, that the people of Jerusalem had been taken away from Jerusalem to Babylon, and it was empty. Jerusalem was like a barren woman without children. But in this case, it also corresponds to Sarah, who herself was barren before Isaac. But much more importantly, is the spiritual application of this. Because what Paul is saying is that that promise spoken by Isaiah is, is being fulfilled even now, even in Paul's time, even in our time, as men and women come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they will one day fulfill the, the heavenly Jerusalem, fill heaven um, with their presence and, and become inhabitants of that spiritual Jerusalem. We're not going to go over this chart right now, but you have it in your handouts. So all it's doing, and if you have questions about this, this may help. All it's doing is it's comparing the slavery of righteousness by law with the freedom that comes by righteousness through faith. Uh, and so I, 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 in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through that right now. Um, but uh, you, can, um, you can talk about that later or ask me about that later if you want to. So here then we have the practical application of this allegory. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. I love that term. We are children of promise. You, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit, Isaac, 
it is the same now. So the first point of application is you will be persecuted. Ishmael was a jerk, man. He was really mean, and, and you, can, you can find that in, um, in Genesis. He was really mean to Isaac. And he's saying, you know what, you'll be persecuted because you're a child of the promise. And then secondly, he says, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's inheritance will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. And so what he, the second point of application is you need to get these Judaizers out of the church. You need to kick them out, just like God had, Hagar, had he, he provided for Hagar, by the way, but he said, you got to get rid of her um, because she's splitting up your family. So, uh, so that's the second point of application. But his main point is found in verse 31. It says, therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is his, his primary point, which is that physical descent is not enough. It isn't just about who are you a physical descendant of, because both Ishmael and Isaac were physical descendants of Abraham. Uh, but there are two lines of, of descent. One is physical, and one is spiritual. Therefore, the true descendants of Abraham are the children of Sarah, not of Hagar. Those who are descendants by the promise and by faith, not by the law. So anyone who attempts to be a child of the law is then, uh, even if they are a physical descendant of Abraham, they are actually the illegitimate children of Hagar and not of Sarah. You know, the Jews use this story uh, in, in uh, Genesis, so the Hagar and Sarah story, to prove that Gentiles were excluded from the family of God that it was through the physical descendants from Abraham to Isaac and down that people were made children of God. Paul turns that on its ear, and he uses the same story to show that it is actually those who are in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, who are the children of promise, who are the true spiritual descendants uh, of, of Abraham and therefore God's children. This is how Terry Johnson puts it. He says, so then, he says, my point, Paul says, so then, my point has been made. We are children of Sarah, the free woman, and because we, are, because we are, we live by faith, free from the bondage of the ceremonial law and justification by works, and in the rich pleasure of the grace of God. So that's the, the allegory, and, and I want to move on now to chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, and I wanna, but first I wanted to say two things for, to you. First of all, this is a transition. The first 12 verses of chapter 5 are transition from... Uh, the theology, the rich theology of the last several chapters to practical application. He's moving from orthodoxy, right teaching, right doctrine, to a word that was new to me, orthopraxy, which means right practice. And, and, and what he's saying is when your doctrine is right, your life should be right. As, you're, as, as, as you become more like Christ, as you're justified in Christ, then orthopraxy follows orthodoxy. So... Um, He's kind of mixing those two things in the first 12 verses, but beginning at 513, he moves completely to practical application. Secondly, I don't want you to get the wrong impression about Paul's seriousness, particularly in these verses we're about to read, but in the whole of Galatians up to this point, because you might even say that Paul has been harsh, uh, and certainly you would say that um, in, the, in the coming verses that he has been harsh, and you might be thinking, well, but aren't we supposed to be loving I mean, he's kind of not very gracious with these Judaizers. He's not 
um, showing grace toward those with whom he disagrees. I think it's important to remember that Paul was dealing with heresy within the church. And, and that's a very different thing than being gracious with those outside the church with whom we disagree. And it's even a different thing uh, from those within the church that are struggling with sin and, and need our grace and need us to come alongside them and to help them. Those that are within the church that would attempt to split the church through heresy need to be dealt with in a different way. Um, because the, the Judaizers, and, and even those today who would preach heresy, were trying to lead people away from Christ and uh, from, from within the church. And we cannot let that happen. We, we must, we must challenge that forcefully. And so Paul does. He takes it seriously because it's a serious thing. Uh, and so that's why he seems harsh. Uh, and in fact, is harsh, harsh, and he's not even done yet. Let's begin with verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by law, but have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, but by faith we, eager, by, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So just to get the flow of reasoning here, Paul has just finished telling um, the Galatians that they were not children of the slave woman, of Hagar, but of the free woman, Sarah. Therefore, they are free. And then he says, it is for freedom that you have been made free in Christ. In other words, Christ has freed you to be free. So be free. You are free, so live free in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that's really common in Paul's teaching that I love is that he will teach a truth, and, and he'll say, this is who you are. So become that. Become who you already are in Christ. And that's essentially what he's saying here. Become who you are. You are free. So become free. Live as a free person in Christ because that is who you are. Um, and then he says, if you, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, if you decide that circumcision is a means of justification, um, then you'll return to slavery. You will return to the slavery of the law never knowing if it's ever enough, being burdened by that, that yoke of slavery, that burden of slavery. And in fact, you know what? It never is enough because we can never keep it perfectly. Not only that, not only will you be returning to slavery, but Christ's finished work on the cross will be of no value to you. It will be worthless to you because you have decided to uh, choose justification by works of the law rather than by grace, by faith. Uh, and because we can't keep the law, any law, it doesn't matter what law, we will never be made right with God through works of the law. And so therefore, we are cut off from the grace of Christ. What a horrible thing. 
So what does Jesus set us free from? Sorry about the horrible grammar, but Jesus sets us free from sin, from death, from Satan, and from the law. We have been set free from those things, sin, death, Satan, and the law. Uh, this is how Philip Ryken puts it. He says, he, Jesus, has kept the law I could not keep, paid the penalty I could not pay, and won the victory I could not win. So now I am free. But I am free to what? I am free to be what God wants me to be, to be who God wants me to be, to live for him and his glory, and to live in a, the only way that counts, and that is a, with a faith that expresses itself in my life through love. Love for God and love for others. Well, let's move on to verses 7 through 12. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross would be abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Did you know that was in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, that's in the Bible. You could probably win a Bible trivia question with that. I just want to give, I don't want to go through this in detail because I want to move on, but I want to give you a couple of thoughts. First of all, what does he mean that a little bit of yeast makes its way through the whole dough? What he's saying is if the Galatian church, or if any church, for that matter, allows even a little heresy, it will infect the entire body. And so you can't even allow just a little bit about it, a little bit of it. And, and we're about to find out that, in fact, these heresies led to great uh, friction within the Galatian church. They were biting and devouring one another. Uh, and so there was a lot of dissension and arguing. And then if I'm still preaching circumcision, I talked about that, that apparently they were accusing him or saying, hey, Paul teach, preaches circumcision, but he says, I'm not. And we'll leave it there for now. Uh, and then the last thing I want to address here is, uh, Paul is angry. <laughs> yeah, Paul's angry here, and I would argue that he is righteously so. But he's also making a theological point, and that is this, that, that in the world of pagan religion of Paul's day, uh, one form of worship was to castrate men as part of a worship ceremony and, and to make them eunuchs. I know y'all are looking at me like, eee. And, and yeah, it was. And so essentially what Paul is saying is, you know what, if you're going to make circumcision a requirement for salvation, then you might as well be practicing pagan castration, because it isn't getting you any closer to justification than that pagan practice is. Now, albeit he's using a little harsher language, but, um, but that's essentially what he's telling them and, and saying that you can't get to justification through circumcision. Um, well, let's move on because he's going to, this is where the rubber really hits the road and, and where he begins to really focus on practical application of all of this theology. Um, kind of ends with a bang there on the theology, doesn't he, with that last verse. Uh, but verses 13 through 15 tell us that we've been freed in order to serve one another in love. It says this, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So he says let's, let, that, that, that 
let's serve one another in love. There are two threats to liberty in, in Christ. One is, is legalism, which Paul has talked about in great detail. But now he's going to turn and say there's another threat to liberty, and that is license. That is loose living. That is living in a way that is opposed to God. The literal definition of license, the, the Oxford definition, is a liberty of action, especially when excessive, a disregard of law or propriety, an abuse of freedom. Or, as Philip Ryken puts it, whereas legalism demands responsibility without freedom, license grants freedom without responsibility. So it's saying, I'm free to do whatever I want. And Paul's saying, that is not the kind of freedom that I'm talking about. So Paul says, do not use your freedom, do not use your liberty to indulge the simple nature or to become licentious. So what is that sinful nature? This, the word for sinful nature is actually sarx, S-A-R-X, and it depends, it can mean actually just a physical body, but in this case, it means um, our sinful nature, it means our corrupt, fallen condition. Uh, or theologically, it means the unspiritual life of the whole person which is inclined to sin. Or this is the definition that made sense to me. The part of me that does not want to do what God wants me to do. That's my sinful nature. And he says, don't use your freedom to indulge that fallen, corrupt nature that you have. That word for indulge is a aphormine. It is actually a military term. It actually means a military base. And so what Paul is saying is, do not use your, your freedom as a base from which Satan can launch a, a, an attack, a spiritual attack against you. Or in other words, don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. Don't say, hey, I'm going to be forgiven anyway. What the hey? Might as well. That's, do, do not allow that to happen. Because the truth in, is that anyone who uses their sinful or their freedom as an excuse to sin isn't free. They are no longer free. They then become slaves to their passion. They become slaves to sin. See, see, here's the deal. We haven't been freed to sin. We've been freed from sin. In fact, Paul's going to take it a step further, and he says we've been freed to become slaves. Isn't that interesting? Use your freedom to do what? To serve. To serve one another in love. And then he says the whole of the law is summed up. What? The law? Wasn't he just trashing the law? What do you mean the whole of the law is summed up in this? He says that we've been freed in order to live for God, in order to live in a way that pleases God, in order to love God and to love others. So now we have both the desire and the power to live according to God's moral law, not in order to gain God's um, merit or favor, but because we have already been granted his favor in Christ. That's how we live. And then with very graphic language, he says, if, you, if you're going to do that, then you're going to be biting and devouring one another. Those words come from, from an animal tearing out. So you can think of a lion pouncing and biting and tearing uh, a lion. It's very graphic. But you know what? That shouldn't surprise us because um, license is base selfishness. I want what I want, and I don't care what effect it has on you. It is base selfishness, and so it is going to lead to broken relationships. Selfishness always does. 
And that was apparently happening in Galatia. He says, instead, to live by the Spirit. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So first he says to live by the Spirit, and then he says be led by the Spirit. To, to, to live by the Spirit or to walk by the Spirit, the word is um, peripateo, and I, and I told you about that this week. It means going from place to place. And so in other words, Paul is saying order your lives in the direction of the Spirit. Walk in the, way this, the direction that the Spirit walks. Live in that way. To be led by the Spirit is a similar thought. It's, it's almost like the Spirit is our, our pedagogue. You remember that word from last week? The, the person who, who took uh, control of young children and led them and guarded them and protected them and took them from place to place. So the Spirit becomes our leader, our pedagogue that we follow. He is our guide, if you will. This is how we are sanctified. Now, sanctification is different than justification. Justification is the, the, the way that we are made right with God through Christ. Sanctification is a process, and in fact, it is a lifelong process. We will read in Philippians that Paul, where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You will be being made more like Jesus until the day you die. We all will be. So sanctification is the lifelong process by which we become more and more and more like Jesus. Day by day, year by year, we should look more like Jesus than we did before. As we walk in the Spirit, it will happen. It can't help but happen, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So the law can't justify, but it can sanctify. It can help us become more like Jesus, because we know how God wants us to behave. Here's how John Stott put it. I love John Stott. Although we cannot gain acceptance by keeping the law, yet once we have been accepted, we shall keep the law out of love for him who has accepted us and has given us his spirit to enable us to keep it. Um, so then you might say, but I still struggle with sin. Yeah, me too. Why? Why do I still struggle with sin? Well, we do struggle, and we will struggle for the rest of our lives. In fact, Paul poignantly describes that struggle in Romans 7, where he says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. What's wrong with me? Who will rescue me, he says at the end of that, from this body of death? And there's great stuff behind that Greek, but I can't get into that now. I want, as, as we go through the struggle, I want you to remember a few things. The first thing I want you to remember, and I want me to remember, because I preach to myself as much as I preach to you guys, is that just the fact that we continue to struggle with sin is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. Because if the Spirit wasn't at work, we wouldn't have the struggle. We wouldn't want to have the struggle. We wouldn't need to have the struggle. And so just the fact that we do struggle is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. Secondly, be encouraged by this. That struggle won't last forever. It may seem like it now, but someday, we will be freed from that struggle. And I am so grateful that that is true. It may seem like the, 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 that we are still struggling and we are still struggling, but the victory has already been won for us. And one day we'll celebrate that. Amen?
So he is going to contrast the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. Notice that the deeds are actions and the fruit is character traits. Isn't that interesting? It isn't do this, do this, do this. It's be this way. And, and it isn't you be this way. It's allow the spirit to transform you into this. Really, I love this passage. This is a wonderful passage. But we have to start with the acts of the sinful nature. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish, am selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these, these deeds of the flesh, uh, Paul says, are obvious. Sexual immorality and debauchery. Sexual, and we're not, we can't go through all of these, nor the fruit, but we'll go through a few of them. Um, sexual immorality is any sort of sexual sin, but most especially it's any sort of sexual sin outside of marriage, what, what used to be called fornication. Debauchery is, is sensuality and indecency, especially in public, with no propriety um, for, for you know, display. That's very contemporary, isn't it? Have you ever tried to watch a football game with your young son without GoDaddy coming on? Don't know whose eyes to shield. My husband's, my kids, where do we go on this? It's everywhere. And sex sells, so it's on TV. New show called Nashville. They've been playing that one up during the football games, haven't they? I wonder why. I wonder why they've been doing that during the football games. Um, it's very contemporary. We've paid a very high price for free love, haven't we? From abortions to STDs to broken marriages to fatherless children, sexual immorality is never free. It comes at a very high cost. In fact, this is what um, Terry Johnson says. He says, this is not a game. God, ha God has a purpose in sexual intimacy. He designed it. He created it. He created it to be pleasurable. But he created it to operate only within the boundaries, the boundaries of the permanence and security of marriage. And then he goes on to talk about a fire in a fireplace. Is there anything better on a cold night than a fire in a fireplace? It's beautiful. It's warm. It's wonderful. What if one of those logs rolls out? Then it becomes destructive. And that is what has happened in our culture as we have decided that sex isn't intended just for marriage. It becomes destructive. He also talks about idolatry, which isn't just, um, it, it isn't just uh, bowing down to some sort of statue. Idolatry is, and I love this definition, attempting to find my identity and security in anything or anyone besides the one true God. Attempting to find my identity and security in anything besides God. Have you noticed how many things on this list lead to, bro lead to broken relationships and broken community? Sexual immorality obviously does, but also hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. They all lead to biting and, devout to biting and devouring one another. They all lead to broken relationships, and our culture is truly broken, is it not? But there's an answer, and we'll get to that in a minute. And then he says, in answer to your question, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live like that will not be saved. That's what he's saying. But that doesn't mean, oh, great, I got drunk one time in college. I'm going to hell. That's not what that means. Because those who live like that, that is their pattern of life, which means they're not saved. 
Because if you're saved, you don't live by the flesh, you live by the Spirit. You have the Spirit inside you. Of course those who aren't saved live this way. They don't have the Spirit to guide them. And so those who are not in step with the Spirit, those who are not Christians and followers of Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because they don't have the Spirit of Christ, this is how they live. But we have the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. I wish I had time to talk about all of these fruit, but I, I do not. Love is that word agape. Agape love, the love God has for us. Love is selfless, sacrificial affection. It is not a feeling, but it is not emotionless. Love is active, and it gives. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he his one and only son. It gives, and it loves to give. Um, those of you who knew my mother know that she was probably the most wonderful person on the planet, but before I knew Jesus, I hated her. That's the truth. How anyone could ever hate my mom, I have no idea, but I did. And I remember the time that we were in church, and I was in ninth or 10th grade, and I looked over, and for some reason I thought, she's praying for me, because we were getting ready to take communion. And my heart was filled with that why I don't need that, I don't need what you're in. I was in church at the time, too. And I was so angry and so, I just hate. I'll never forget, this, this is a memory, I mean, I can see this in my mind. My senior year of high school, I'd come to Christ the summer before, and I came in after school and walked into the kitchen, and my mom was doing something in the kitchen, and I just felt this burst of, I just, I was, I, I loved you. And I went over and I gave her a big a hug. And I, I love you, Mommy. I love you. Uh, and, and that love can only come from one source because God is love. And that my heart was changed. My life was changed by the Spirit. I didn't do anything to have that happen. God did that in me. And it was my privilege, partly because I was the child that gave them the most grief, to be the child that cared for my father through Alzheimer's and cared for my mother through cancer so that I could give back some of that love that they had given to me. Uh, so love, joy. Joy is a contentment that is not based on circumstance. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing because we have joy. Because you know what? We have Jesus. And we know what the future holds for us because of what Jesus has done for us. We know the promises of God are true and therefore we can be content in any circumstances. Paul puts it again uh, in Philippians. Um, we have peace not just with other people, but we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, it, peace is a sense of wholeness and a settled tranquility because we know that God is in control. One of my favorite sayings of late, um, I actually got it on Facebook from my nephew-in-law, but is this, when I'm, when I'm worried about something, when I'm anxious about something, God knows all these things. God knows all these things. We have peace. Patience. 
Patience is long-suffering in the face of hardship. You know, when I think of patience, I think of the two most important men in my life, my daddy and my husband. How I was blessed to get two such patient men. I could, we could be here for the next hour and a half with stories of patience that they have had with me. But I'm just going to tell you one quick. I'm going to tell you one that you guys don't know. When I uh, graduated from college, I moved out to Colorado. We packed everything that we could in my little Honda Accord, and I'm, I went out there, and my parents packed up a big van. My father packed up a big van, drove all the next day, because you know the speed limit was 55. It took roughly about forever to get to Colorado, just west of Denver, and, and drove all the way out and unloaded the car that night and helped me set up all my stuff and left the next day. I had wanted one thing for graduation, a Bentwood rocker, which my grandmother gave me, and my father had to put together. Now, my father was an Air Force pilot, but he was not mechanical at all. I mean, he couldn't screw in a screw with a screwdriver. And the guy told him, this will take you about an hour. Four hours later, after he had packed up my stuff, driven to Colorado, unpacked my stuff, and he was four hours into this, and I'm thinking, oh, Daddy, do you want to know the worst thing I heard him say? Rats. Rats. My father was patient. He was long-suffering in the face of hardship. And then Paul says we need to kill the sinful nature. I don't have time to go into this, but just, just know that our sinful nature doesn't need a timeout. Okay? It, it doesn't need even a spanking. Uh, it, it doesn't need a lecture. It needs to be killed. We need to not gratify it, to not give it what it wants. And then he says, let us keep in step with the spirit. This is another military word. I actually didn't write it up there. It's another military word. It means stay in formation. It means to be march according to the spirit. March according to our leader, Christ, and his spirit. It isn't he steps and then we step. Have you ever watched a march? They all step at the same time. They all step at the same time as their leader. And what happens when a whole group is following the leader, they're not only in concert with the leader, they're in concert with one another as well, aren't they? That is the way to unity within the church, is to keep in step with the Spirit. Well, let's apply this. I live on the forest, and I have a lot of trees in my yard and behind my yard. I have a lot of trees that bear fruit. In my front yard, oh, this one broke. In my front yard, I have two huge oak trees that love to grace us with its fruit. In my backyard and my side yard, don't touch these, I have several large black walnut trees. Once these break open, your hands will be stained forever. I have uh, right by my deck, whose idea that was, I'll have no idea, a shagbark hickory tree. My deck is now littered with these babies all over the place, and then the squirrels go, oh, good, lunch, and they break them apart, so I have a, a billion little pieces of hickory. You know what? Those trees don't even have to try, do they? It is just what they are. It is what they are, and so they therefore produce fruit. We are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, that is who we are, and therefore we will bear fruit. As John 15 says, he is the vine, and we are the branches. If we remain in him, we will bear fruit. We cannot help but bear fruit. It comes supernaturally from the Spirit. We don't have to force it. We can't force it. The Spirit does it in us. What we can do, however, is cultivate the soil. Well, how do we cultivate the soil? How do we do that? We walk in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. What does that mean, to walk in the Spirit? 
just want to give you some practical ideas. As we stay in his word, as we spend time in his word, these ladies, we cannot live what we don't know. So as we are in his word, we become more like Jesus. As we are in prayer, especially in times of temptation, having a running conversation, I heard this once called practicing the presence of Christ, having a running conversation with God throughout the day. Daily worship. You know one of my favorite places to worship? In the car. It's also one of the most dangerous places to worship. If you ever hear on the news that someone was found with their eyes closed behind the wheel like this, <laughs> you'll go, okay, we're not having Bible study on Tuesday because that would be Amy. Keeping a short accounts with God and with other people. When I sin, do I confess right away? When I sin against someone else, do I confess and ask for forgiveness? Staying in fellowship with other believers. Scripture tells us as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Um, and it also tells us he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. And then finally, what am I allowing into my heart and my mind and my life by what I watch, by what I listen to, and by what I read? Uh, anyone who knows me well knows that I am a political junkie. Love politics. Love talking about politics. Love thinking about politics. I have had to turn off talk radio because I realized I, w I was losing my peace. As I have replaced that with worship music, it's amazing the difference it has made in my life because I have cultivated the soil with something other than that. And by the way, why even listen? I know who I'm voting for. I'm not undecided. And God already knows who's going to win. So I don't need to know anything else. Well, here's, here's what I want you to know as we finish late. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. Therefore, you have God's spirit living inside of you. Listen to him. Keep in step with him. Walk with him. Be led by him. It is the only way to battle sin in our lives. And the truth is, ladies, that battle is already won. We are victorious. So let us become who we already are in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the practicality of walking in the spirit. But most of all, Father, thank you that just as my shagbark hickory tree doesn't have to force nuts to fall on my, on my uh, deck, nor can I force your growth in my life and, and becoming more like Jesus. It is the supernatural outgrowth of my being led by the Spirit. Help us all to keep in step with the Spirit, Father, I pray in Jesus' name.